Why don't you guys stand with me for reading God's Word. This is Matthew twenty-three twenty-seven. It says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. Let's pray. Father, this morning... Uh, we ask that you would come and you would speak to us, that you would help us to understand the difference between whitewashed tombs and integrated lives, and that we would be people who become clean because you have made us clean. Amen. Have a seat. We almost had a video this morning. Almost. Almost. I want to give you the video of Keanu Reeves going, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. But uh, it didn't render correctly or capture correctly or something like that. And so uh, I just, maybe next week, maybe next week, you know, I swear by the end of this, I'm going to have a Keanu Reeves video where I can make fun of him, okay? <laughs> anyway, uh, this is uh, week number five. If you missed any of the weeks of the woes and you want to listen to them, you can get them at ourelement.org. Like I said, they are free. You get what you pay for. Uh, this is maintained by Mikey, our sound guy back there. It's a great site. He's just all over that. So far, looking at woes, we have looked at gnats and camels. We have looked at inside and the outside of a cup. We have looked at faith and converts to hell. We have looked at justice, mercy, faithfulness. We have looked at shedding the kingdom of gods in men's faces, not lifting a finger to help somebody else, asking, seeking, knocking, wind. And today we're looking at tombs. Just what you come to church to hear about, right? Tombs. I remember when I was a kid, I, I saw this movie by Disney called Pollyanna. Okay. Well, when I was going, okay. All I remember from the movie is this thing, death comes swiftly. That's all I remember from the entire movie, so it just makes me think of that. Okay, apparently you've seen it. That's good. Um, the, the woes that Jesus gives, they are, they are these dire warnings that are woe to you because you are so cut up in your religion that you have forgotten about people. And your religion has actually pulled you farther away from God. And that's where Jesus goes. So today we're looking at this in regards to salvation of the world, how he allows us to partner with him in that, and how we get off track. And what the scriptures say, so we examine our lives and look at that, where we find out we're wounded and God wants to heal us, where we're uh, broken and he wants to fix us. So turn your Bibles to Matthew 23, verse 27, 28. Tim, so nice, I give you so much time to get there. Put it on the screen so you don't get lost. I still have cumin seeds up here. I'm like, I'm wondering. See, you got to listen if you haven't heard that one online. But I got them. They're like stuck in behind this. Maybe we'll put second service online, Mike, and not first service. <laughs> Matthew 23, 27, and 28 says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Once again, Jesus influencing people and winning friends in how to speak. Uh, to get what being said, you have to understand a couple things, meaning three. Uh, tombs, Passover, and whitewashing. I'm going to give you lots of information. Just follow along with me, and in the end you're going to be like, wow, that makes so much sense now. Uh, tombs. Tombs are a very, very simple thing. What's in a tomb? Dead people, okay? It's, it's about death. Uh, and, and what's also in a tomb? They're gross, okay? Worms, bugs, putrefied carcasses, something that was full of death. Okay, For a Pharisee or a religious person at that time, a tomb was the opposite of godliness because God represented life and a tomb represented death. Uh, turn to Numbers 19. Numbers. Num 19 is a number, I know, but it's also in the Bible. <laughs> 
Now, this is, what did the Pharisees know about death, okay? Uh, you're looking at the Torah, you see God constantly pointing the Israelites, but the difference between life and death. Uh, Numbers 19.16, and it says this, uh, Anyone out in the open who touches someone who has been killed with a sword, or someone who has died a natural death, or anyone who touches a human bone or a grave will be unclean for seven days. Okay, so if a Pharisee or any person comes by, comes in contact with the tomb where there are bones, he is unclean for seven days. Then there are all sorts of rituals you've got to take care of to become clean again. You can't go to the temple. You can't be in contact with your family because they'll become unclean. So there's all these things that go along with that. Leviticus 23, you don't have to turn there. It talks about uh, seven feasts. Three of those feasts are called pilgrimages where you have to actually go somewhere. One of these pilgrimages is Passover, which could take place in March or April, depending on the year. Passover is uh, this holiday where the Israelites would celebrate God saving them from bondage and slavery. Essentially, they're in Egypt. God wants his people set free. Pharaoh says no, so God sends a succession of plagues. Now, the very last plague was this plague, which is death of the firstborn. And this angel comes by and it's going to kill every firstborn in Egypt. And this is what God says. You take the blood of a lamb, you sprinkle it on your doorposts, and that will bring life to your firstborn. The angel will pass over. Okay, so there's all these connotations. A lamb, firstborn son, passing over, and all of these things. So right for this, at Passover, your entire family would take themselves and go to Jerusalem. There's an old saying that said, all roads led to Jerusalem. So you meet your family on this journey, everything would be packed. During Passover, men would go to the temple, they would sacrifice a lamb, okay? Then they'd take the lamb back to where you were camped. The entire family would then have this 15-step meal called a Seder, which would eat bitter herbs to remind you of slavery in Egypt, and you'd also eat that lamb. Huge celebration. Passover was the single most important event in Jewish history. It marks freedom from slavery, freedom from bondage, and most importantly, this freedom to worship who God is. Following with me? Good. Okay. So, now, a couple thousand years ago, there weren't all the wonderful and maybe not so wonderful laws about burial that we have today. And so graves are typically unmarked. Anyone could be buried anywhere. It's kind of like you watch these old movies and the wagon trains all, and the Indians show up, and it's like big battle and people die. What do they do with the people? Dig holes, throw them in a hole, put rocks on top of them, Jed died here, and, and you start moving on again, right? It's kind of the same thing here. You just, you guys need to lighten up just a little bit. Okay? <laughs> so you start moving your whole wagon train on again, and you just leave the people where they died. That's, that's what you do. And right here, that's what would happen. You had people, two to three hundred yards right outside the temple, where all of these graves, and most of them were actually unmarked. And so, you know, what's the problem with that? Yeah, you don't know what you, and so if you are a Jew and you're going to temple, maybe it's Passover or whatever it is, you know, and you come down, they came in contact with that grave. They cannot go to the temple and worship God. They had to stay away from their family for the risk of making them unclean as well. Imagine you are a follower of the one true God. And if you lived anywhere outside of 30 miles of Jerusalem, once in your life you're supposed to take a pilgrimage to the temple during Passover. If you lived in 30 miles, you're supposed to go. Period. So imagine you live 30 miles outside, and you decide, man, we're going to go. Next year, I've been saving for 10 years. My whole family, we're going we're gonna to hop in our wagons, and we're going to hope no Indians attack us, and we're, and we're going to go. Okay, we're going to go. Maybe you're a new convert and some demon-possessed guy, 
you know, came and told you about Jesus, and you're like, oh, this one true God. And so you're like, okay, I'm going to go. And, and so you pack up everybody. I mean, you've got your mother-in-law, which is like, ee, you know, and your, and your grandmother-in-law, which is like, ee, you know, and, you're, and, you're, and you've got your uncles and your aunts and your nephews and your nieces and, and everybody that's in contact with your family, and you pack them all up and your animals, and, and you're on this whole wagon train, and you're, and you're going down in, into Jerusalem. Okay, on the way, you meet followers, and it's like, hey, we're going to worship God. You're very, very careful to stay ceremonially pure before you get there because you want to be able to celebrate Passover. During Passover, there could be 100,000 people just in the Temple Mount area. That's how busy it was there. And so, you know, you, you, you're coming, and, and I have a picture, right? Okay? Uh, this is overlooking the Kinner Valley. This is actually a graveyard that's right there, Okay? You see the dome of the mosque? That wasn't actually there during this time. And, and, so, and then I picture the temple. Okay. And then I got one more picture. Don't I? Okay. So imagine you're coming up. And you've been like trekking for days. And you're hot and you're tired. And, you're just, and it's like you're talking to your wife. And you're like, your mom is driving me nuts. You know? And, and she's like, well, your mom's driving me nuts telling me how to cook and what. Yeah. So you come, and you're just like, oh. And you come over that hill and you see the temple. And you're like, oh. And you just go, yeah. And you just start running. It's like, I'm leaving everybody behind. I'm going. For, and you just run in the temple. And all of a sudden, your friend's behind you going, Aaron, Aaron. And you're like, what? And he's all, bummer for you. <laughs> and you look down and you're standing on a grave. You cannot go to temple. You can't even go back and hang out with your family because you will make them unclean. And so you have just lost out in this thing. And so what's the solution? The solution was whitewashing. People would come and put whitewashing on the tombs and graves to mark them, to separate them so people could see them on their journey. And so over the years, this whitewash would wash off. And so a festival was held on, uh, held on the 15th of Adar, which is called Purim. And they would put white lime on the grave to act as a warning. It would be like this sign. Watch out. Avoid these graves. There is death here. Watch out. Okay? So next to the temple of the living God, there are all these whitewashed tombs. Life and death. Life and death. Next to each other. So go back to Matthew 23. Okay? 27, 28. Jesus, as we have seen, is always taking something from everyday stuff the Jews do, something in their everyday life, stone, rock, lime, tree, and he uses this as a metaphor for the human being. Uh, you've seen the, he uses a cup as a metaphor for the inside and the outside, a picture of cleaning the human soul. And now he says to the Pharisees, he says, you are like whitewashed tombs. It's like you look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of bones of the dead, dead men's bones. Every day you are unclean. Because of your hypocrisy. That's what he says to them. He says, in the same way, and this is a phrase he likes to use to shift gears to move to, you know, picture from the physical to the spiritual. On the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And he turns the tombs into a picture of themselves. Now, he's been on this rant before. He says, there's a split between your outside and your inside, between how you, what you say, and then what you live. This is how religious people always have this propensity to create this distinction between what they say and what they actually do. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. Six one. 
Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness. This is the word Elias, okay? This is acts of mercy before men to be seen by them. He's not saying don't do anything good. What he's saying is don't do things just to be seen by people because if you're doing it just to be seen by people, you are doing it just to be seen. You're not doing it for God. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues on the streets to be honored by men. Is it possible to be given to the poor and to be serving, to be giving time, energy, and money and be totally wrong. Yeah, it is totally possible. It is possible to give to the needy and be wrong. It is possible to give to the poor and your heart be full of pride and hypocrisy. It looks great, but it comes from a place of darkness. Turn to Luke uh, chapter 18. Jesus here speaks of two people. They're going to the temple to pray. Prayer is always a good thing. Okay, don't ever think it's not. There's a Pharisee and a tax collector. And there's a, so you have a Pharisee who, who is actually seen by the people as being very good. They are, they are committed to their national identity. It is, it is a good, Pharisees, yay. Then you have a tax collector who is a traitor to their country. Boo, bad tax collector. To help you get a better idea, it can be stated like this. Uh, the Pope and a pimp went to church. Okay. <laughs> So your thoughts, right? Well, a pope, he goes to pray, to give a message. Take, he's really holy, to be a holy guy. Pimp goes around to find young girls to hook for him, steal from the collection plate, eat babies and old women. Yet, right? Yeah. Okay. So this is how people felt with the story. They would say, oh, the Pharisee, he's the hero. Cheers. Tall building, single bound. That's the Pharisee. Tax collector, villain, boo. Makes boy bands, pop-up ads on the internet, raises chickens for cockfights. We don't like that guy. Okay. <laughs> So the listeners at this, they'd be totally astonished when, when Jesus takes his whole story and flips it on its head. Because in the end of this, the tax collector becomes very humble. And he says, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. While the Pharisee is very, very self-righteous. The evil person humbles themselves before God. So there's a contrast. Uh, Luke 18, verse 9. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down at everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. When a Pharisee and the other tax collector, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. What a prayer. <laughs> Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. <laughs> and you're praying, dear Jesus, what? <laughs> I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. And this is someone. He is in the right place. He is at the temple. He is doing something good. He is praying. He is doing another good thing. He is fasting. Another good thing. He is tithing. But his heart is full of self-righteousness at the expense of others. This is kind of like us. And we feel better when we talk about someone else behind their back. And we're like, oh, it's, it's okay. Someone else's hurt makes us feel better when we talk about someone else's misfortune. It is possible to give to the poor and yet be filled with pride. I mean, you can come to church and you can sing all the right songs, attend the right service, and yet the heart is deeply saturated with the sense of, I am better than somebody else. And that is wrong. Turn to Luke 10. You're already in the book anyway. Cult pages to the left. This is Jesus in another discussion with the religious leader of the day. Luke 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a normal question. This is not argumentative. If you went to a, a rabbi, you wanted to engage in conversation. A rabbi knows the way of God. And so you would say, how do I live in harmony with God to inherit the world to come? That's what, and this is what the question was. And so what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Jesus says, what's your take? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
Great answer. So Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live, meaning this is how you live in the way with the harmony of who God is. But he wanted to justify himself. So the conversation is not over. <laughs> so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So that's the question of the whole thing. Who is my neighbor? And so Jesus tells a story about this guy who was hurt and a priest and a Levite walk by on the other side of the road and a Samaritan comes by and helps this person. It's where we get the good Samaritan. Now, a Samaritan was hated by the Jews, and Samaritans also hated the Jews back. And so the Samaritan comes along, takes this guy, gets him help. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Answer? Yes, yeah, Samaritan. Not hard. It's right there. It's, it's easy. It's, it's not a trick. Okay. The expert in the law replied, the Samaritan? No, he can't even say the word Samaritan. He says the one who had mercy on him. And this guy will not say the word Samaritan because it is deep-seated hatred towards Samaritans. Jesus tells a story. The hero is a Samaritan. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. And then the Taliban leader helped the wounded American soldier. Yeah, it's a, And the Al-Qaeda members tutored the orphans. Go and do likewise. You know, I... What? Exactly. The expert in the law wants to know God deeply, but he can't even say the word Samaritan. Is it possible to know the right Bible verses and answer theology correctly and yet still have these deep-rooted feelings of racism towards other skin colors and ethnic groups and cultural lifestyles? Yeah. And it's wrong. Woe to you. See, Jesus gets at the point, who had mercy on him? Who had mercy Jesus takes all these things that you and I try and hide every day, and, he, and we only talk about these things with people we know who are safe, and then he exposes those and pulls those out, and those surfaces, and it exposed to, what the, to the light. All those things we need to deal with, the things that make us unclean, the things that make you and I full of dead men's bones. So how do we get to deeper things that Jesus wants us from dealing with the passage like this? So you go back to Lyme. Okay, the lion was placed on these tombs to mark off, you know, do not be unclean because inside the grave there is death and defilement. And so that means for you and I, just like the Pharisees, there are things that need to be marked out in our lives with lime that says this can make us unclean, like racism, like thinking we're better than other people. Let me put this in a bit of perspective, real world, okay? Uh, lust is Satan's nuclear bomb takes out the majority of guys, okay? I know men who have great families, lovely wives, kids, sometimes they're great, sometimes they're not, uh, decent jobs, wonderful friends, and yet they struggle with the issue of pornography. And now with internet-based pornography, no one ever has to know, oh, it can just be really quiet, right? And I'm not just pointing a finger at guys, you know the largest and fastest growing section of pornography is pornography that's geared towards women. But, taking it just for guys, guys like looking at naked people. It's the way you guys are. I personally, I have an innate desire to see my wife naked all the time. All the time. And that's a good desire. But, but pornography is destroying our guys. And I don't care if it's softcore, hardcore, it's just art, whatever. It's defiling and killing our men. And I have seen marriages destroyed, family units in chaos, and has led to death for those who cannot stop. I, I know stories of families where children have lost their mother or father because of this issue. 
And we need to take lime. And we need to stick a sign in the ground that says, This is a grave. We need to watch out for this. Because if, you, if you're stuck in this and you act like everything's okay, woe to you. Because you're a whitewashed tomb. And you're full of dead men's bones on the inside. Do not go to this grave any longer. Men, dudes, guys, especially fathers, it is easier in your home to let your wife leave than take responsibility for your family. It is easier. But before God, Scripture says you are responsible for your family. Most women marry boys, but yet in the end they're like, we want men. They want a little boy they can control, but eventually they want a man. And men come in, and they don't want to lead. They want to stay and hide and take it very, very easy. You, you lead not by walking into a home and going, Woman, here's my Bible study. Make me a sandwich. That is not leading. Leading is you lead by loving. You lead by having integrity. You lead by protecting your family from influences that would destroy it. By not taking responsibility seriously, you are treading on unmarked graves. And you need to stick a sign and mark it with a line that says, Okay, I got it. This is an unmarked grave. I got to grow up. And I'm not going to act like everything's okay because there is death there. I've got to live correctly. Um, ladies, real world, kind of same thing. One of the hardest things for women to do in a marriage is to let their husbands leave. Really. I, I know many women are like, he doesn't, he won't. I tell him all the time, lead, lead, lead. <laughs> exactly. Okay, exactly. <laughs> Men are not built like women. Men need encouragement and praise. They need to feel like they are the greatest person in your eyes. When, when I do anything, what I want more than anything is my wife to go, you're the greatest. And I want to be like, yes. And, and honestly, I, I don't care who else says what to me as long as she thinks I am the greatest. That's what is important. And when, and when guys get that, you know, they, uh, they change. And they begin to love you. And I know you say things like, you know, well, he should start first. Honestly, yes, he should because he should take responsibility and do it. But sometimes they don't and they need you. Okay? Taking a lead all the time is this mark of the fall. It's become a power struggle and it is an unmarked grave that can lead your family to destruction. And we need to put a sign up and mark it off with lime and say, this is an unmarked grave. There is death here. We need to watch out for it. Gossip is an unmarked grave. And we all get involved in it. We all talk about this. We all get irritated about something. Instead of talking to the person that we're irritated about, we gossip and talk about behind their back. We put a sign up. We need to stop complaining and bitching about other people. We need to put a sign up that says, this is an unmarked grave and there is death here. Because if I walk around and act like everything is okay... I am full of dead man's bones. This is all over our lives. I'll give you an example for me personally. Uh, I know a lot of Bible history. I, I read a lot. I, people ask me a lot of questions. Sometimes they're really bizarre. I don't get it. Uh, every once in a while, someone asks me a question, and I don't necessarily know the answer to it. And I'm like, uh. my first reaction, start talking. Just start talking. And then I, you know, because it's kind of like you park your car on the side of the road, and, and you've got to really go to the bathroom. It's like, where do I go? And there's really tall grass. And just take people out into the tall grass. Oh, you know, vicarious substitutionary atonement, hypostatic union, throw them out there and be like, and trust Jesus. (laughs) And I, you know, I walk back the other way and they're like, "Uh, 
what just happened? Uh, okay, you know. <laughs> My second reaction is, I should just say I don't know. And I will go find out for you. That is an unmarked grave. We are addicted to the impulse of whitewashing ourselves rather than using this lime as an indicator of where we need to run from. You know, there's our, there's our true self. And then there's a self that we want everybody to think we are powerful, strong, together, you know. I am convinced after all the people that I've counseled and spoken with that everyone is just as screwed up as everybody else. When you look at somebody and say, oh, I've got it all together. No, they don't, okay? They're just, maybe they have different struggles than you do, but they're just as jacked up as you are. Everybody. And many times the people who seem the most confident, that is their exterior. That is their whitewashing instead of their lime. Is their whitewashing. Oh, I look so good. You know, look at me. Everyone does this. We all put on this face. You know, guys, everyone, I think, wants to actually be in a place where they feel safe enough to step away from the grave and be clean again. We have this lime as an example, and it serves as a warning. I mean, maybe you've ignored the markers and warnings you know, all your life, but now you're like, today, I want to heed that. I want to get rid of this whitewashing, and I want to cover some things in some lime. And this is the choice that God offers you today and every day, but especially today because I get to talk to you about it. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says this, God was pleased to have all this fullness dwell in him, that's Christ, and through him to re- reconcile himself to himself all things, were the things on earth or things in heaven. By making peace, there is blood shed on the cross. This is the whole idea of the blood of the Lamb that was shed for us. To reconcile, to reconcile something is taking something that was once conciled and now is no longer and conciling it again. So we get this word conciliatory, which is uh, making peacemaking or an overture or proper relationship. There are once things in proper relationship, but now they aren't and they need to be again. Reconciling is bringing back together things that were once together, but that was disrupted. And the cross is God's way of making peace with all things, including us. Through the blood of Christ, God has made peace. God has enabled us to step away from the grave that we constantly step on and to walk to Him. Jesus does not want us to live in the split reality of the outside and the inside, the spiritual and the physical. We are to be one being. In... uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures and, and Jews, they have this thing called the Shema. It's taken out of Deuteronomy. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And what that means is God is not divided. He is whole. He invites us to a unified whole. Reality in its essence is unified. And He wants us unified as well. And so do you live with internal things? And yet the external reality is different. God wants to reconcile you. He wants to unite you so you can stop pretending and stop whitewashing yourself. In the midst of all these woes, Jesus, again, invites us to be a unified person. That's what he calls us to. And this is actually part of the point of communion. The shedding of Jesus' blood that reminds us that we have been washed clean, that we have been reconciled. At this table is a place where we say, thank you for what you have done. We should take a moment and allow God his time to speak to you and I. Because when he speaks, we can step back and go, where have I whitewashed? What do I have to mark off with lime? And then where do I go and say, thank you?
for saving me. And that's where we go this morning. The band's going to actually come up. And I'm going to encourage you guys today, as you take communion, to stop stepping on graves and stop defiling your cells. Be reconciled again. That is God's invitation for you and I to be reconciled. We come to this place every week and we're going to worship God through communion. We remember Christ's body, which is broken for us, His blood that was shed for us to bring us into right relationship again. We're going to worship God through song. The band's going to play some songs. We're going to worship God through prayer. If you want to pray, there's going to be some elders in the back of the room that would love to pray with you. We worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the wall and in the back of the room. We're going to worship God through fellowship. You're hanging out and talking to each other. You don't have to leave. There's a room in the back. You can hang out and get to know some people. And worship is more defined by what we do during the week than what we do in this room. Because if you think this is the only place that you worship God, then woe to you. This place may even become an unmarked grave for you. What you do out there is worship. And Mason's waving. (laughs) It's my thing for you guys to stay. Find the grave. Mark it off. Stop whitewashing. Live for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this morning, uh, we as your people come here and we ask that you would speak to our hearts because there are many, many, many places that we in our lives have taken and we've whitewashed. And yet we need to mark it with lime. God, help us to step from those places where we are not reconciled to you and to be reconciled again. To restore those places of proper relationship. And to love you and others you have called us to love.